0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit NorthMonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You know, that first Palm Sunday, the air was electric because this Jesus that everyone had heard about was finally coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He'd been ministering in Galilee, and they'd heard the stories of the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and the lame were walking, the blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing. They're hearing all that. And then story comes out of this little town of Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem, that some dude named Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And that same Jesus is now coming to Jerusalem. And the people are losing their mind. Could this be the Messiah? Matthew chapter 21, verse 7 And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. I I didn't realize that. They were throwing their, their good coats in the road so that Jesus could ride over them. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The Crowds were going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And so it's this electric moment where Jesus comes in like a rock star and the disciples are like the entourage. That was Sunday. Six days later, just six days later, that same crowd, that same group of people who were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That same group of people were now saying, crucify, crucify. And you read that and you go, what happened? I mean, why would they do that? And I think the answer is fairly simple. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they had wanted. Um, I thought about this for some time. I think there were four reasons that the crowd rejected Jesus. First, he wasn't political enough. They thought Rome was the problem and they thought their Messiah was going to be the answer and he was going to somehow kick Rome out and set up the golden days of Israel again. But it was all a political problem. You know, we're the same way. We want it to be a political problem because if it's a political problem, then it's someone else's responsibility to fix. They are the problem. And yet Jesus never once talked about Rome. He never once said, Rome's the problem. He said, you're the problem, and the sin that's in you is the problem, and everyone who sins is the slave of sin. And they hated hearing that. But that's something we've got to hear, because as long as someone or something else is the problem, then someone or something else has to take responsibility to fix that problem. And Jesus said, we're the problem. I mean, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was the great Soviet dissident, who was uh, in prison for eight years in Siberia in a gulag. And going in, someone handed him a New Testament Bible. That was all he had to read in the gulag. He was a committed Soviet atheist. And yet in the process of reading that New Testament, he came alive to Christ. And here's what he said. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. They are not the problem. I am the problem. It's me. And politics can't fix what's broken in me. But they, the Jews didn't want to hear that. They wanted to be someone else. It was Rome and Jesus wasn't political enough. I think secondly, he, he messed with their religion. The Sadducees ran the temple like it was some sort of vertical monopoly of graft and they charged exorbitant prices for the people to buy their sacrifices. But even worse, they forced them to convert their Roman coinage into temple coinage so before they could even purchase the sacrifices. And they set the exchange rate. And so they're ripping people off right and left. And Jesus goes right after that. Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the, cha- the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scripture declares, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. By the way, guys, for those of you who had this image of Jesus as this sort of mild-mannered, milk-toast personality who just sort of gets along, goes along, and anybody can stomp all over him, you need to change that perspective when you see him walk into the temple, which is thick with every form of political party and jewish patron and he goes right at the core of the religion and throws their tables upside down i mean you talk about a mighty man who's willing to take it all on but you know in the process of that people get mad when you mess with their religion they were expecting jesus to come and do that to rome and instead he did it to them now, they might not like the Sadducees, and they may be upset with the Pharisees, but they were their Sadducees and their Pharisees, and you don't mess with our religion. Third, Jesus seemed to be soft on sin. I mean, about one time in His ministry, He's teaching at the temple, and they dragged this woman caught in adultery, caught in the Bible says in the very act, so she doesn't even have time to dress probably mostly naked, trying to cover herself with a bed sheet. They don't care. They want maximum humiliation. They drag her, throw her before Jesus, said, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Moses says, stoner, what do you say? They're trying to trap him, knowing that his heart goes out to the sinner while he's at the same time upholding the truth of the law. Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it, which he did on the cross. But in that moment, they, they set a trap. And so Jesus simply says, let the one that's without sin cast the first stone. Man, you could hear rocks falling out of people's hands right there. And the men just kind of drift away. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. He said, well, then neither do I accuse you. Now listen to the second part, because he says this too, go and sin no more. He didn't say, I'm justifying your sin. He's saying, go and sin no more. I'm not going to bring that accusation against you, you know. And, and, and some people say, well, Jesus was soft on sin. He wasn't soft on sin. He was, solid. he was just kind to sinners. And aren't you glad? Because every one of us is a sinner. And yet when we get into that judgmental mindset, that legalistic perspective that, you know, you need to deal with your sin, we are at the same time always ignoring our own. And that's just what people do. Now, imagine if you are one of these Jewish dudes, and you have seen this your whole life. You've seen these women caught in adultery. You've seen some of them probably have been stoned, maybe not all of them, but at a minimum, they're outcast and ostracized. And you 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 believe that that's the way to treat people who are caught in sin because you're just like me, and you have the ability to overlook your own sin while focusing on someone else's. And so you become very judgmental and legalistic and all of that. And now all of a sudden, Jesus lets her, you know, you're talking to your friend. And it's like, hey, he found this woman caught in adultery. Yeah, what'd he do? Did, he, did they stone her? No, he let her go. You know what you're going to say? You're going to say, what a liberal. He's a liberal. Soft on sin. Not my kind of Messiah. But I think the main reason was darkness hates light. Darkness just hates light. John three nineteen, And judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for the fear their sins will be exposed. Why do we see this animosity toward Jesus in our world today? Because darkness hates light. I mean, get it. Jesus said, get it, guys. They called me Beelzebul, which is the Lord of the demons, the Lord of the flies. How much more do you think they're going to call you? They hate you because they hate me. We get all wrapped up in this and we're like, man, they're tra- trampling on our rights as Christians in America and all this. Other. Jesus predicted you're going to have a hard time because darkness hates light. And that's the core of it. So six days after Palm Sunday, Jesus is in the upper room preparing his disciples for the coming disaster. By nine o'clock the next morning, he would be on the cross. And in that moment, he gave them four things that he wanted them to remember forever. And these became so seminal that they were recorded in the scripture for us. These are four things we need to remember forever that occurred in the upper room when Jesus was with his men. And so here they are. I wanted to deliver them to you this morning. First of all, never forget Jesus was what he claimed. And we see this in the Passover. Uh, That night in the upper room, Jesus took the Passover with His men. The Passover, for those of you that don't know, it's an ancient Jewish feast that started when God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He did that with with ten dramatic, uh, devastating plagues, and the last was the worst. He sent the death angel through the land of Egypt to slaughter the firstborn child of every household in Egypt. And it was a part of the judgment of God of the Egyptians killing the, the uh, male children of Israel. And God does this to, to break the will of Pharaoh to release the people. But in order to distinguish between the Jewish households and the Egyptian households, He instituted a feast. And here's how it worked. Uh, the first month of their year was called Nisan. Nisan. Now, the Jewish calendar doesn't line up with our calendar because the Jewish calendar is based on, on the lunar cycle, the moon, while our calendar is based on the sun. But Nisan is uh, March and April in the Jewish calendar. On Nisan 1, they were to take a lamb from among their, their herds and they were to hold that lamb until Nisan 14. So 14 days they're to hold the lamb, make sure it's unblemished. Then on Nisan 14, and these dates are important because I want you to, just to see something that happened with Jesus at the Passover. On Nisan 14, there was another feast that was instituted. It was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the women were to go through their house and they were to get all of the unleavened, all of the leaven out of their house. And that was to, to go on for seven days. So it started on Nisan 14 and it would end on Nisan 21. And that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On Nisan 14, when the Feast of Unleavened Bread started, they were to take that unblemished lamb and at twilight, they were to slaughter that lamb. Now, twilight for them was any time between three and six, they called it between the evenings. So at twilight, they were to slaughter that lamb. They were then to take the blood of that lamb and they were to paint it on the doorpost and across the lintel of their home so that when the death angel came into Egypt, it would see the blood of the lamb and what? Passover. That's why they call it the Passover. And then after dark on Nisan 14, which turns into Nisan 15. Now remember, and this is important. Okay, the Jewish day started at nightfall and not at 12 midnight. There were no clocks. In fact, I don't know if you knew this. There weren't any clocks until the 1200s. So they had no clocks. So the way that they would they determine the start of a new day was at the end of the previous day. So at night, at sundown, that was the new day. So Nisan 14 uh, lasted until sundown. And then beginning at sundown, you have Nisan fifteen. On the 15th, they were to take that Passover lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and they were to eat that in their homes together after sundown on Nisan 15. You with me? So Jesus is in the upper room with his guys and we know from the context of the story that that year that Jesus was crucified, the Passover, which happens on Nisan 15, was to occur That Sabbath, Saturday. Now, it's Thursday night, okay? In our time, it's Thursday night. In their time, it's Friday morning. It's after sundown, Thursday night. Jesus is in the upper room, and he takes Passover. But he's taking the Passover a day early. And you're like, why would Jesus take the Passover a day early? And there's an easy answer for that, because he would be in the grave on Saturday when the Passover occurred. Jesus took the Passover on Friday night at sundown, which is really our Thursday night, because he would be in the grave the following Saturday. You're like, well, then why did he take it at all? Because everything related to the Passover was related to Jesus. It pointed to Jesus. When John baptized Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Everything about Jesus Christ was was typified or typed in the Passover, and he wanted them to be able to see that that he was the sacrificial lamb. That by his blood we are freed from judgment and we move into life. And so he took the Passover with his guys on Friday night, well, really Thursday night, Friday morning, and then by nine o'clock the next morning he was on the cross. And he was on the cross for six hours when they went to uh, determine whether or not Jesus was still alive, and they did this because they were trying to get ready for the Passover on Saturday, they went by the criminals and they were going to break their legs because if you break a criminal's legs on the cross, they collapse, they can't get a breath of air, and they suffocate. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. They stuck a spear in his side and out came water and blood. Maybe you know that story. He was already dead at 3 o'clock. Which, and this is what I wanted you to understand, which was Nisan 14th in their dating... At three o'clock is the precise time that the Jews in that moment were killing the Passover lambs to celebrate Passover later that evening. Do you get it? Jesus was crucified on the cross at the precise time that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Now, why did he do that? Because he wanted to connect the dots. That Passover celebration started, depending on how you date Moses, either 1200 or 1400 B.C. And here's Jesus at the precise same moment saying, my life is given for you. He died on the cross Friday morning, Nisan 14, precisely when the Passover lambs were being killed. Or Friday afternoon, not morning and he was connecting it together. Because here's what he, he wanted them to realize, he was what he said, that this thing wasn't happening by accident. It wasn't by chance. Uh, back in the 60s, this uh, irreverent comic named Lenny Bruce once said that the crucifixion was just one of those parties that got out of hand. Now, this was a This was something that God had planned before the foundation of the world. You can even go back beyond that to uh, Abraham in Genesis 22 where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, to a mountain called Moriah and sacrifice him there. You hear the language of God's only son, Abraham's only son. Abraham's walking up the hill to sacrifice his son. He's got Isaac with him. Isaac says, Dad, I don't get it. I see the fire. I see the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And, And he makes this prophetic statement. Abraham says, God himself will provide his sacrifice, which is exactly what happened with Jesus. And and, and I say this because when the pressure's on and you're in that upper room and, and there's a lot of uncertainty in your world and there's some opposition to your faith and values, you need to know, you need to know unquestionably Jesus was who he said he was without a doubt. And he was demonstrating that through that ancient ritual. Second thing is never forget that Jesus calls us to humility. He did a second thing that night in the upper room. He washed their feet. You know, that was something that was supposed to have been done by the lowest slave in the household. Everybody comes in uh, and and Jesus washes their feet because nobody else had washed their feet. But even more importantly, when they walked into that upper room, they were still talking about who was going to be the greatest. You talk about a group of guys that can't read a room. They thought Jesus was a rock star. They were the entourage. He's about to be, they're still thinking about Palm Sunday. They have learned nothing of the last six days and they have no idea about the mood that Jesus is in. And so right there in the middle of the supper, he gets up, gets a basin and he goes to each one of them and washes their feet. Why is he doing that? He said this in John 13, 14. If I then, the Lord and teacher washed your feet You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. You know what he's saying? Guys, this isn't about you. It's not about your glory. It's not about your your pride. It's not about your ego. It's not about the number of likes on Facebook. It's not about you. You got to be willing to die. And man, when the pressure's on, if it's all about you, you know what's going to happen? You're going to fold like a You're going to fold. I almost said like a little girl, but I can't say that stuff. Besides, I've got a granddaughter now. and She's ferocious. You're going to fold. But if you know that it's not about you, then you carry on. Isn't that what those guys did? They carried on. Here's the next thing. Never forget that a new day is coming. He instituted the Lord's Supper. That's the third thing he did. And I always thought it was a continuation of the old. It's not. The Lord's Supper replaced the Passover. Uh, Matthew and Mark both add this comment at the end of the Supper. I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when Paul teaches the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians, he says this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until He comes again. And I was always thinking that's all about death. It's all about death. But and then I started to realize He's not really talking about death. He's talking about life. He's talking about living. He's not talking about the old death. That's Passover. He's talking about the new life. What What is the time between His death And his second coming, that's called the end times. And that's where we're living. It's about us living right now. Yeah, death is involved. We remember his death in order to live. That's the point he's trying to make. It's not only a symbol of his death. It's a promise of something new. It's a promise of life. And we see it in the small things. For example, he didn't use the lamb. There were three elements on that table that he could have selected. Lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. And when he wanted to make his point and institute a new covenant, he didn't pick up the lamb, which would, for me, have been the most obvious symbol. That's the symbol of Jesus. He picked up the bread. He said, he, he, he broke it. He prayed over it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. We always say, this is my body, which is broken for you. But he doesn't say that. He never says that. He says, given for you. What's the difference? Well, if it was broken for you, then it's all about death. But if it's given for you, it's all about life. And every brain in that room would have immediately gone back to John chapter 6, where Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And the next day, he gave the bread of life sermon. And he said, I'm the bread of life which comes down from heaven. Whoever takes me will never hunger again. It's not dying he's talking about. It's living and the Lord's Supper, while it does remind us of his death, it provides an, an image of life, of a new life in Christ. He'd the wine. You know, the wine wasn't even prescribed in Passover. It was just uh, there to wash down the bread and the lamb. And he picked up the wine and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And we always go, well, it's about death because it's in his blood. But that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is the new covenant. The in my blood shows how it was done through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm made new, but the new covenant is the is the big news part of it. This isn't the old covenant. The old covenant is based on law and your performance, keeping the law. The new covenant is based on grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not the result of, of works that no man would boast. And it's new, and it's all about grace. When Jesus was trying to to uh, describe. Uh, what the newness of the covenant was. You know what he told them? He said, it's like new wine in old wineskins. It's new. It's the new life. And I thought it was important too. He didn't touch the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs, we don't even know about the bitter herbs. When we do the Lord's Supper, are there any bitter herbs down here? Aren't you glad? (laughs) The bitter herbs were to remind the Jews of the bitterness of their slavery. And I thought it was interesting. Maybe we're not to remember the bitterness of sin. Maybe we should forget sin the way God does. Because, you know, four times in the Bible, this line is repeated verbatim. There's sins I will remember no more. And there are no bitter herbs in the Lord's Supper. Maybe he's saying, stop remembering what God has forgotten. Stop remembering what God has forgotten and get busy making your life count. It's not just dying he's talking about, it's living. And he wanted them to know that, that you need to have a life that's full and rich and meaningful, a life that recalls the death of Christ to the world around them so you become the influencers of this generation. Never forget. And that last thing is never forget that your failure isn't final. He predicted their failure. That's the fourth thing he did in the upper room as they walked out of the upper room, Jesus said to the 11 remaining disciples, remember Judas is gone. He said in Matthew 26, 31, tonight, all of you will desert me. And I read that and I go, man, that's a demoralizing statement. It's like, it's like having a coach go, okay guys, we're gonna hit the, hit the court tonight, but every one of you is gonna play lousy. You're gonna embarrass me. You're gonna stink up the, the, the place. Is that that empowering anybody? Is anybody going, hey, yeah, I'm ready to play now, coach. But think about what it meant. He's saying, every one of you is going to fail me. And I think what it means in the end is this. When they failed, as we fail, it's already been predicted. In other words, you're not going to surprise him with your failure. And they knew that this isn't going to catch the father off guard. He knew it was going to happen. And here's the powerful truth that emerges for me out of this. He loved them before they failed. He loved them knowing they would fail. And he loved them after they failed. You see, if God predicts my failure, and he says, "Die, you're going to mess up. And he loves me knowing I'm going to mess up then when I mess up, I know he still loves me. And I can take that same failure to Jesus and lay him at at his feet and say, here I am again, Lord, same thing. And he can say, you know what? I'm gonna restore you, forgive you, heal you because failure isn't final. And God wants you to know that because when you're out there doing battle and you're on the ragged edge and you're living for Jesus in a very hostile environment, there's going to be times when you fail. There are going to be times where you sin because of your own lust and your own greed and your own selfishness. But there's going to be other times when you sin because of your fear of, of rejection or your fear of what other people think or your fear of their opinions or your fear of failure, whatever it is. And when you fail, you need to understand failures never final. God wants to take you, restore you and heal. You know, it's interesting to me. Jesus denied... Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. That's part of that story. Later on, Jesus brought Peter back to himself and he said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, you know I love you, Lord. He said, then feed my sheep. Second time he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, why do you keep asking? You know I love you. I just said I love you. Tend my lambs. And then a third time he said, Peter, do you love me? And He said, yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Isn't it interesting that Peter had failed Jesus three times and Jesus gave him three opportunities to make it right? That's what he does with you. And those are four things we must never forget. Never forget Jesus is who he said he was. Never forget it's not about you, you got to die to yourself. Never forget it's not just dying he's talking about, it's living. And never forget your failure is not final. And when we take this, it reminds us of all of that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for all these things. Thank you for your gift of mercy and grace. Thank you that you love us. No one will fail. You love us when we fail and you restore us. And we thank you for that because we couldn't do that for ourselves. And while the Jews rejected that Messiah because He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted, Father, we realize that You were the Savior we needed. And we lay ourselves before You because of that in Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.